0: But Kim used to say to my mum, even at the bitter end, history will judge me kindly. He really believed, or at least he definitely was convinced he believed that they'd done the right thing. And I think in many ways he probably did, but I do think there also must have been nights where he struggled to sleep.
1: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. In June 1934, Kim Philby met his Soviet handler, the spy Arnold Deutsch. Philby was a British intelligence officer and a double agent for the Soviet Union. In 1963, he was revealed to be a member of the Cambridge Five spy ring, which had divulged British secrets to the Soviets during World War II and the early stages of the Cold War. The woman who introduced Philby to Deutsch was Edith Tudor Hart, and her story has never been told. Edith Tudor Hart changed the course of 20th century history, and then she was written out of it. I speak with Charlotte Philby, granddaughter of Kim Philby. Charlotte has written Edith and Kim, which draws on the secret intelligence files on Edith Tudor Hart, along with the private archive letters of Kim Philby. This finely worked, evocative and beautifully tense novel tells for the first time the story of the woman behind the third man. We also hear from Charlotte what it was like having Kim Philby as her grandfather including details of her visits to see him in Moscow during the Cold War. It's a fascinating insight into one of the most notorious spies of the Cold War. Now, this podcast relies on your support to enable me to continue to capture these incredible stories and make them available to you. If you'd like to continue to hear the podcast and help preserve Cold War history, you can support me via one-off or monthly donations. Just go to coldwarconversations.com donate for more details. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. So back to today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Charlotte Philby to our Cold War Conversation. One of the things I love to do on the podcast is the unknown stories of the Cold War, you know, stories that that perhaps have been brushed over in other accounts or just unheard voices. And I think Edith Tudor Hart certainly fits that bill.
0: I think she does. I mean, for me, Kim's story is infinitely interesting as it is to many people. But not just the story itself, but the fact of the different ways in which it's been told and what it means to different people. Um, And it was really exciting for me to find a character in there who I knew so little about and who it would seem had this extremely pivotal role in Kim's life and he and hers. And for her to almost sort of be written out of history, although I should add that her um, nephew, Peter S. Young made a fantastic a documentary about her life tracking Edith um, and was very helpful to me in uh, introducing me to the right people. So, but it, she is just the most fascinating character, regardless of her connection to my grandfather. You know, she was not just a spy, she was a phenomenal photographer who's now recognized um, for the talent that she was. Um, she was a single mother, um, fully committed to a child who today probably would have been um, diagnosed as schizophrenic. She was a revolutionary. She was a spy. She was many things wholeheartedly at once. And that is, for me, why she's such an extraordinary figure. And then there's this connection to my grandfather, which just makes it sort of mind-blowing. You know, I'd come across her
1: name, and because she's not i don 't know the books that i 'd read probably she's she 's more of a footnote rather than a pivotal figure i 'd imagine that she was with a hyphenated name. she was some English woman who had you know become involved in left wing politics but I found well the fact that she was Austrian and brought up in Austria and her early life absolutely fascinating can we we just go back and and you tell us about you know where where she was born and her her early life.
0: Yes so she was um, born in the first decade of the 1900s and she was the daughter of a a bookseller the first socialist bookseller um, in this uh, sort of working class district of Vienna but her parents had sort of chosen to live in because they weren't actually working class but I think they sort of um, felt connected to to that place and to the people who lived there Um, and she and her father you know she sort of to me, she inherited um, aspects of her father, who was incredibly sort of forward-thinking and progressive. But you know that their their views um, differed. I think he, she didn't feel that he his views went far enough. Um, but she sort of grew up against the backdrop of the sort of interwar period uh, in in Vienna. She was, you know, she was very much there when everything when everything was happening in a way that I feel, it's not that I feel that Kim and, the, and the, you know, the sort of the Cambridge spies were like voyeurs or, or that they um, sort of adopted the cause in a cynical way, but they chose to be involved. For Edith, this was sort of innate. It was part of her sort of formative experience. And she in herself was fascinating. She went and studied under Maria Montessori when she was just 16 years old. She uh, then went on to the Bauhaus and trained as a photographer. And she met Kim in Vienna in 1933. Kim had moved, had had gone there, sort of gone to Morris Morris uh, Dobb, who was his economic professor at Cambridge, and said, "How? What? What can I do to help? Where can I go? I've got 100 pounds that was given to him by his father, Sinjin. and he said. Uh, you know, I'm going to go off on my motorbike, where shall I go? And, and um, Maurice Dubb put him in touch with someone in Paris who suggested that he went to Vienna. And there he lodged at the house of um, a young woman called Litzy Friedman, who I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with. Kim became a lodger at their house. By that point, uh, Litzy had already been imprisoned for her activity and Kim went to live with her and, and, and through Litzy met her best friend Edith who was slightly older and she ended up marrying a man a medical student called Alexander uh, Tudorhart at the same time as Litzy and Kim married and they both went to London together a month after they went to London um, it was Edith who introduced Kim to Arnold Deutsch on the park bench in Regent's Park And at that moment, you know, there's a question of, you know, their lives sort of diverged and and I don't want to give too much of the plot away, although obviously much of it's history and much of it will, you'll know. um, You know, it's also a novel and it's very much my own reconstruction of the the events as I found them, both through my readings about Kim um, and Edith, about, uh, through the family letters that I inherited um, that i've sort of been reading and rereading the past decade or so um and through the secret intelligence service files that were held on edith from 1930 to her death
1: and i think the the way that you tell this story is is great i love the the format where you've got the mixture of the sis files in there and you've got these imagined letters between kim and Edith, that are obviously based on the letters that you have in your possession and they're in his style. For me, it, it sort of gave me a, an insight, more of an insight into his character because I think when people are writing personal letters, you get to know much more. Well, yeah, I think you get much more of a feeling of them and I can imagine and, and sort of see how you're reflecting his his character in in those letters but the the opening of the book i loved because it's the yeah maybe we shouldn't betray the opening of the book but the the opening of the book i really uh love the the scene setting there and i was interested you know when when i was researching the interview because i don't just throw these together charlotte you know there's a, charlotte. there's a little bit of little bit of research going on but apparently you 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 found quite a strong bond with her because there were some locations that were part of your formative years, which had a link with Edith as well.
0: Yes. Well, uh, quite a few in in a fashion that, you know, kind of made me feel quite chilled. So I went to school. It wasn't actually, it wasn't where I lived. It was nearby, but it was a school in St. John's Wood where my mum was a teacher. And Edith lived in the flats just next to the park where I used to go and play after school and it was also where Kim coincidentally had grown up again sort of not I, I don't believe that's a connection that they would have ever have made and then she well I've lots of family in Vienna on the other side of my family my maternal family but what was particularly striking to me is that she ended up um, running an antique shop um, on Bond Street in Brighton and when I went back and found the uh, the actual shop front. It was next door to the smoking shop where I used to buy my smoking papers. And it, it's it's become a bar where I used to drink when I um, was a student there. And it, it was just extraordinary to kind of, to imagine that she, she lived this life and, and she was this amazing character who had so much significance in my grandfather's life that I'd never known about. And also who I felt I had this connection to by virtue of the fact that we'd sort of walked the same streets and what was particularly sort of uh, emotional, I guess, when I was researching the book, um, a lot of it I wrote. I mean, I I feel like I've been writing it in my head and sort of preparing for it for more than a decade. But um, the process of actually getting, you know, putting pen to paper and and doing a lot of the research in terms of going and seeing the locations um, happened in lockdown. Ironically, because you know we weren 't actually able to travel, but the the London walking that I was able to do for those sections of the book it was really eerie because there was no one else around, and I was able to sort of walk from um the Isocon building, which is near my mum 's house and again near where I grew up in Hampstead Heath, where I spent char- my childhood you know most of the weekends um sort of throwing sticks for our dog. And, you know, these are the same paths where she was meeting Arnold Deutsch and handing over information. And, and uh, from there to, to Belsize Park and to parts of London, the, the, my favorite moment was outside Sutherland Avenue, one of her flats in Maida Vale. And I kid you not, there's, um, there's a phone box. And then in front of the, the front door, there was a red napkin dropped like it was it was something out of a spy novel. It was yeah. amazing. But yeah, the, the sort of so much of her life was around that part of um, North London. But I love her connection to the Isocon building, which is um, very near, like as I said, uh, near where I grew up. And that was, I mean, I felt like that was one of the, my favourite characters in the book. It's such an extraordinary place. And I sort of knew its reputation slightly, but it sort of represented different aspects of Edith's life in in the sense that it was this sort of very bohemian sort of like hotbed of wife swapping (laughs) and and the actual physical um, construction of the building meant that it was very difficult to see in from outside and once you were inside it was very easy to disappear and there were sort of external entrance uh, exits to the rear to Belsize Woods um, which sort of meant that people could escape very easily. Um, But it also encapsulated this amazing design sensibility and the whole sort of modernist movement of which Edith was part. And Edith took the photos of the exterior and the interior for the original press shots. And, you know, key players there were like Marcel Brewer, lots of the Bauhaus alumni that she wouldn't actually necessarily have crossed over with when she was at the Bauhaus, but um, it was slightly before her time. But she would have met them there. And there were cameos from Agatha Christie, who was a one-time resident. So that was one of my favorite spots.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that building because it, it is a, a fascinating building, very striking. There were other sort of espionage links Within that building as well, Arnold Deutsch had a flat there. But also Jürgen Kaczynski, who was the brother of Agent Sonia, who Ben McIntyre has recently um, written about. So there was a, you know, there, there was a, a multi espionage connection to this place.
0: Yeah. So Lawn Road Flats um, or the Ice Cream Building was, you know, has a very rich history uh, for spies, creatives. There's a brilliant book called The Lawn Road Flats Hyphen Spies, Writers, and Artists by David Burke, which gives a really comprehensive history. There's also um, the the memoir by Jack Pritchard, who uh, co sort of created it with um, with uh, Wells Coates, and that is called uh, View from a Long Chair, which I love, which sort of Talks to the furniture that he created with Marcel Brewer and there's wonderful pictures of, you know, the place at that time uh, in, when it was built, and it was it's just extraordinary. And the re- uh, it already had the sort of the, the the spy connection before Arnold Deutsch moved in, and it was Edith who actually encouraged him to go and live there, and um, when he was living in London, sponsored by his cousin Oscar, who. I believe it owns the Odeon cinema chain. Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
1: So her involvement in left-wing politics comes from a family influence there, and you sort of touched on it earlier that during this period there was a rise of fascism. You had, you know, Mussolini had been in power since the nineteen twenties. Uh, Hitler came to power in in thirty three, and obviously the Nazis had been around earlier than that. And also the Spanish Civil War as well. So there was a feeling of people that there had to be something better than this, which drew a lot of people into left wing politics. And obviously Kim was was one of those that, you know, became involved and wanted to do more, which is why he ended up in Vienna. And Litzi, his wife, plays quite a, a role in the book as well, doesn't she?
0: she does. Um, she's a fascinating character. I I would have loved to have met her. I felt she had been written about the fall more than Edith. So I sort of, it's not that I intentionally sidelined her, but she definitely plays a role that I wanted Edith to take, uh, sort of central stage. But I feel like, you know, there's definitely a sense that she might've helped galvanize Kim. So or at least, you know, she took charge. You know, when, when you read about her stories, it's usually as a, a sort of, seems to me a bit of a fixation with the fact that he was supposedly a virgin when he arrived in Austria and she sort of broke him. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, and I, I find it interesting <laughs> that um, that is what's been sort of often seems to be mentioned. Um, they were... They were very liberated women and I love it. They, they You know, they had a real, you know, they, there was Wilhelm Reich at that time. They were, they were reading a lot of about contraception and about these sort of, they were taking on, it wasn't just against the rise of fashionism. It was like, you know, it was about creating a world that was the world that they wanted to live in. And I feel that they were so brave and they were so, so undistracted from their goals. And yet what's fascinating about Edith is, for me, but well, one of the reasons she's fascinating is because Kim sort of insisted that he was two people. He was a he was a private person. He was a political person, and if forced to choose, he would. He said, "You know, of course, I would choose the political." But I feel Edith and Lizzie, neither of them, to me, felt like they saw that as their choice, and perhaps there was something to do with the fact that they were women. And Natalie, in uh, Litzy's case. Because she became a mother later but for Edith you know she was a mother she was a spy she was all of these aspects of her life sort of fully and at once um and she she didn't have the luxury of making that choice like Kim did she didn't have um a wife at home looking after the children if she had made that choice to to sort of to put her her commitment to uh the cause ahead of her child you know that would have been absolutely abhorrent but you know, for Kim, that's not something we mention. We never say, oh, he betrayed his family. It's always he betrayed his men, he betrayed his country. Um, And I think that was one of the things that I was particularly fascinated in sort of exploring in the book.
1: It is a fascinating study in the inequalities that there were at that time, but also how both Litzy and Edith sort of just rebelled against that and wanted to live a better, more independent life Mm. than you know their uh mothers had had ever lived or or would ever have have dreamed of. I did interview a couple of years ago somebody who spoke to Litzy when she was in East Germany and I asked here I think it was a hymn and for the life of me, I can't remember who it was. It's because there's so many episodes now. Yes. Um, but I said, Did you ask her about Kim? And he said, I did, and all she would say was that Kim was always a gentleman.
0: Oh. I think it sort felt incredible loyalty and sort of connection to one another, sort of, you know, clinging to those memories amidst because you get, you know, to get to a stage in one's life when you have, in Kim's case, you know, sort of working both sides. The number of people that you have betrayed, the number, the number of secrets you're keeping, it must start to really mess with your head. No matter how, con- you know, he was clearly brilliant at deceiving people and, and um, mm-hmm. maintaining his front, uh, iris- you know, regardless of who he's talking to, regardless of how many, how much alcohol been drunk, regardless of anything. Um, but there must have been a sense that. If, real paranoia and can't trust anyone and I think that that was kind of why I sort of imagined Edith I suppose sort of as his conscience and what was amazing to me was you know there's no evidence of them having kept in touch after that moment on the park bench but when I went back to um, Moscow in 2010 um, and found by very sleuthish methods the apartment that he lived and died in um, in Moscow 22 years after I'd last been there when we finally found the flat and Rufa very kindly let us in and well not let us in sort of welcomed us with open arms my partner and I and laid on this sort of lavish tea I went into his Kim's study and Barney took a couple of photos because I was doing a piece for the independent sort of like following me tracing Kim's footsteps and um, for the first time as an adult and recently, I looked back at a couple of the photos that had been taken in his study, because I was looking for the titles of specific books, I sort of zoomed into the spine. And in the top left hand corner, it's so sort of unobvious that he wouldn't have noticed it unless you had been zooming in as, as I was was the photo that Edith had taken of Kim as a young man, which was the only tangible link between them and and actually the image that became her unravelling. And it felt almost like a message to the outside world. And the positioning of it, it sort of almost sounds ridiculous, but it felt like a sort of angel on his shoulder. And I imagined him looking at that picture and sort of remembering and using that as a, you know, as a reminder of why they'd done what they did. And there's a huge chance that I'm reading too much into it, but I don't think I am. And the fact that it was there all that time, and the journalists that, uh, we, you know, when he finally spoke to the press were coming and going, Philip Knightley, Genrikh Borovic, they were coming to his flat, sitting in that room, they never, it, they never got him to say who, who the person was who introduced him on that bench, you know, and, and he always refers to it in the books as he, and all the time, Edith's portrait was sitting there staring the at them. The like, flu
1: was up there all the time. I
0: found that very funny.
1: <laughs> wow, yeah. It's almost like deliberate, just winding them up.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very, it's to his sort of um, humour, I would think.
1: <laughs> so did Rafina not know that you were turning up? You just showed up?
0: No, she didn't know. And I know this is, it seems completely ridiculous, but when I said, because we used to go there, a lot in the 80s. So I was born in 83 and and he died in 88. So I was very young, but we used to go there every year. My dad went, you know, used to go several times a year. So we knew the place very well. But when I asked my mum and my aunts for an address, they said, well, we were never given an address. They had a a PO box, um, you know, that they would send it to an essential post office um, on no one was ever given an address because we would be met at the airport by these men in suits and, and thrown into the back of a car with a sort of flashing light on top and whisked down the motorway to Moscow. So uh, um, it, was, it was almost farcical. We had a, a napkin, we were sitting around at Sunday lunch, a napkin and sort of various half-cut relatives with a pencil trying to remember sort of in relation to, I think, McDonald's. There was a McDonald's, which was this sort of um, extraordinary landmark which we sort of worked from. And and they sort of drew out what they thought would be the route. And Barney and I sort of retraced, well, sort of followed this very um, unreliable map and found the outside, the sort of gated entrance, which I recognized. And we literally waited for somebody to go in and slipped in behind them and then just went and rang all the doorbells. And eventually oh, I had wow. this, oh, not you know, in Russian. Yeah. And, I said, Charlotte Philby and Ruthie, Charlotte, Charlotte, you know, she was completely shocked and eventually, you know, she came down and saw us and she burst into tears. It was very moving. Um, and she died last year in May, which is very sad. Um, And it's, but it makes sort of my memories of that place even more poignant for me now because I'll never go back, you know. Um and obviously, in life, everything that's happening now will never go back, but um, yeah, that's
1: incredible sleuthing there, and also remembering the look of the place from being so young to be able to identify the gates
0: it was you know it's um it was quite incongruous it was uh, it has a sort of particular look to it, and I remember the positioning there was a school um next to it, and it sort of sits on this corner, it's just a quite a specific looking building and inside it had been kept like a mausoleum you know it was exactly the same and it's not just that my memories are fooling me like we have family photos of me sitting with my grandfather and Rufa and, and her family and my dad and everyone and you know it, with the same table in front of us the same muskets on the wall the same furs and actually there was a little framed photo on the corner of me when I was about four which was quite um Again, quite moving. And then his study had been kept, as is. It was fascinating seeing all the books, you know, the Jeeves and Worcester and Anthony Trollope side by side with Communist Manifesto <laughs> and the relationship of the proletariat.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what was it like going into that study? Because, I mean, that must have been really...
0: Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War Conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important.
1: Get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. You know, you're almost in the presence of him, I guess, is almost what you what it felt like.
0: It felt intrusive, to be honest, at first. Um, but then I had to remind myself that he'd been dead 22 years and probably quite a few people have passed him <laughs> him. But, Um He was quite proprietary about um, certain things. You know, he used to, make, we used to have this game, but if anyone sat in his chair, he had this big brown armchair, and if anyone sat in it, you know, he'd, hit the roof so i used when he ran out, went out the room i used to sit in it and then he'd go out and then just as he was coming back in i'd sort of run out and he'd say who's been sitting in my chair so i did have this sense of like who's been in my study um but i it felt like you know it almost felt like he was there really um, his typewriter had been replaced by a dell laptop which i think he would have pr- approved of especially if, when you read the book and you see his constant moaning about his um, his ongoing fight with the typewriter, yeah, type typewriter, <laughs> yeah.
1: <And laughs> yeah, yeah. And did Ruf- Rufina talk about about him?
0: Not, no. I mean, I have to be honest. Her, her English had diminished significantly, and I don't speak Russian, um, so the communication was was mainly sort of you know the sort of international language of hugs and <laughs> um, you know body language um, Yeah. But she obviously you know she loved him the fact that she was so elated to see us um and that was because I was a connection to him you know and she wanted to yeah. talk about memories and my dad had died a year earlier which was sort of, has sort of been the trigger for, for me sort of really um becoming I mean I, you know, I, I, I don't want to say obsessed but you know very fascinated with uh his father and the sort of the legacy and the impact that had on him and um was obviously very fond of my dad, who went first went and found Kim when he was 19, just after he'd absconded um, and visited, you know, regularly thereafter. Um and I think probably he reminded her of of him, though my dad was very different, led a very different life. Um but she just obviously loved Kim, you know, and I and I know there's this and I know she was sort of put there. By the KGB, Mm but she did also say to my mum, my mum said, you know, oh, Putin, you know, when he got in, or maybe this is a force for good for Russia, you know, obviously this was a long, long, long time ago. And she said, oh, no, same, 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 more KGB, same, 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 which I think is very interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cause also on that on that visit, I've seen photos of you visiting his uh, his grave as
0: well. Mm, that was again farcical because um I arrived and there are two at Cemetery, there are two cemeteries and there's the one for the sort of, you know, the the layman and we've got that there. And it's bloody miles from the other one. <laughs> and it was minus 26 degrees. And we were dressed in these ridiculous outfits, which were, you know, just every warm thing that my family friends had lent us because we were in our twenties. We didn't, you know, we didn't really, we were a bit gung ho when we were packing and my mum's friend sort of came over and said, "Look, no, you need these walking boots. You need these furs. You need... So we sort of looked rather strange <laughs> and we rocked up at the cemetery and got out and just, Sort of set about thinking that we would just find his grave, which is completely ludicrous, even in a, an English, you know, that had sort of English script on the gravestone cemetery. Anyway, eventually we managed to embroil the security guard in some form of conversation and kept saying the name Phil, you know, Kim Philby over and over again. And then finally, somebody else in the room stood up and said, Philby. And said yes (laughs) and he said get in and suddenly we're in the back of this blacked out four by four driving out of the cemetery a man in a long black coat driving us out of the cemetery up the road you know sort of forestly I like oh my good god this is where it ends Um, (laughs) a few minutes later we were taken into the correct you know the sort of one uh, as you know for dignitaries or whoever and uh and there was Kim next to Yeltsin's mama. And the the, da- the man who took us there was saying very proudly, Yeltsin's mama, Yeltsin's mama. And there was Kim's grave. And, um, you know, I sort of laughed about it because it was slightly ridiculous, but there were freshly cut flowers that someone had just left there. Um, wow. Yeah, and I – that was quite – yeah, that was quite something um, – because I guess I can sort of, it's, it's uh, I've learnt or or I'm trying to learn not to maybe, maybe it's the other way around, um, to sort of seek him as lots of different people. You know, and he's sort of, he's my grandfather and I I have those memories of him and then he's the idealist and then he's the traitor and then he's, the, you know. he And even within that, there's so many different versions of him. You know, within my family, he's a different person to everyone. It's just... Um, so, I'm, a- I'm able to sort of isolate my reactions to, to things in a way. Um, but that was a very uh, sort of moving experience.
1: Yeah, it must have been. It must have been in- incredible. Because I think you called him Grandpa Kimsky. Is that yeah. correct?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Grandpa well, Kimsky. I don't know where that came from. But, and then when he, so I've got a couple of letters that he wrote to me personally. And, um, You know they are gorgeous, and and I know that I'm biased, but but they are truly, truly gorgeous letters. Um, And at the end, he signs his name, Grandpa Kimsky. But on the letters that he writes to my dad, he signs off Panina, which is sort of a conflation of Pa and Nina, which is short for Rufina. Um, Right. And it's that sort of like playful coding, like they, you know, he wasn't. No one was going to not realise that that was him, but he he sort of gave himself these little um, names. He was quite a playful character, as as you know, as well as being many other things beside. I really appreciate you sharing that, Charlotte.
1: That's oh, really a Really interesting. That's an understatement, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up with the surname Philby. Mm. did that cause any problems for you?
0: Um, it, well, I mean, it definitely caused problems for my parents and it definitely, there were moments like I remember being in a shop in Arizona where my mum's, some of my mum's family live um, and we were refused service on the basis of the name on our credit card. You know, you're not welcome around here. And that's quite shocking. But, wow. you know, it's, but it's also not shocking when you understand the context. As a child, I didn't. Since then, I mean, I think my memories of understanding that something was different and that something was quite wrong are sort of mainly around the time that he died and we were sort of hounded by paparazzi, and it was a very dark time. And no one, people weren't really hiding it from me because I was only five and a half, so there wasn't, I couldn't understand it anyway. And obviously, people were trying to shelter me, like in the way that you do a child from anything that's um going to be negative for them but i recently somebody alerted me to a photo that was for sale on the internet and it was a paparazzi shot um of my dad with a suitcase getting into our volvo on our street in kentish town um and me as a child with plaits staring back into the camera just looking very scared and worried And I had this, like, flashback, really, I think it's best described as, um, to uh, this feeling of, like, total unease and, like, being very scared and not understanding what's happening. And um, I spoke to my mum and she said that he was on his way to Kim's funeral and, um, you know, I didn't know where he was going. I I didn't understand what was happening. Um, But we were being chased by photographers and there was, like, A real sense of intrusion and that phones were being tapped, and you know, it was, it was not a good thing. But then, you know, I also had memories of family holidays in Moscow as very sort of ordinary and just jolly and like really warm memories. Um, So yeah, I I I don't know. I get that what that in a way it's been very helpful to me. Like I understand that as a journalist, people when I first started, um, when I first joined the independent in 2006, um, sort of newly qualified, um, you know, having gra- graduated from the NCTJ. Um, my mum did say to me, be very careful because you can't trust journalists. I <laughs> will <laughs> <laughs> get anything from you. And obviously was right. Um, journalists at the independent tended to have more um, morals, but. There was definitely an interest, and and but then also it, it sort of triggered, I think I reached a certain stage where people would see my surname and then they say, oh, Kim Philby, can I, well, let me tell you about your grandfather. And I guess it sort of um, was beginning of uh, a feeling maybe that I was sort of having my family history retold to me in a way that didn't sort of reflect the experience as I understood it. Um, but that sort of mm-hmm. led me on this journey of, I suppose trying to understand how one story can mean so many different things to different people, and how you know that that's that's sort of endlessly fascinating to me. I guess with my first novels, because they're not um, traditional spy novels, and that th- there's something very different. I think maybe some people felt a bit cross because there was. Obviously, in the press, there was a connection made between me and my grandfather, and my book's being inspired by him. And then it was like, "Hold on, this is not what I signed up for." And I think some people felt an aversion to that, which I understand. Um, but with this book, obviously, it's um, uh, you know, I'm I'm not looking at it obliquely. I'm going full frontal <laughs> into the um, the question of who my grandfather really was. But I wanted to do it in a way that felt like I was bringing a new story and, and something that justified talking about him because I didn't want to tell a story I very actively actually I was approached by writing a book years and years ago and I said no like I don't have anything to add and at that stage I didn't feel I did and it wasn't until I'd spent so long sort of reading his letters and, and thinking about him and then finding the story about Edith that sort of brought new light um onto sort of you know story that's been told so many times and that's not to say that Edith's story hasn't been told. There's a, you know, her, Peter S. Young wrote a brilliant book, unfortunately, only in German and French, or it's, rather it's written in German and translated into French, um, about Edith. Um, but in, you know, for somebody like me who had read so much about the Cambridge spies and actually never seen her name as anything more than a footnote until um, until I saw her re- referred to but as by Anthony Blunt as the the grandmother of us all. It seemed like okay. This is a story that that deserves to be told.
1: Absolutely, and it it is a a rich story that that you're that you're telling here. Obviously, there's you know you you've had to imagine the conversations and mm. what went on, but I think you portray that period really well and what must have been you know it's trying to get into edith's head and and try and think what she was thinking at the time and what she was what she was trying to achieve because it it's a sad story as well i mean it's immensely sad the you know the you know how her life ends and you know the her son as as well and you know the struggle of being a single parent during that period, as well as dealing with a a son who's who's not well, mm. um, and trying to seek the right treatment for him, and and whilst still being watched by MI5 and being under surveillance and being prevented from getting jobs as well. You know there there was obstruction going on there to try and prevent her even earning a livelihood which is why she ends up in Brighton running an antique shop i mean it it's it's a it's a sad story but it's a it's a story of a strong woman who wanted to live independently think independently and break out of the mould of a lot of women dur- during that that period and whilst you might disagree with the politics that she becomes involved in, you can see why people get involved in that in 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 the politics during during the this this time. I think if you read the history of that time, you can see why people got involved in, in left-wing politics.
0: Absolutely. But I wanted to punctuate that with certain moments, like key moments, you know, with the the Nazi Soviet pact, where there must have been, oh. you know, there was certain cognition there, you know, yeah. something what a foot um and then with Stalin's purges and I really wanted to try and understand how she could have reconciled that with the decisions that she had already t- and I guess you know I, I don't know the answer and obviously I'm hoping that the book is a sort of um a considered study of that and, and you know I don't want to undermine it by saying something tr- trite um about that now but I feel that she probably felt, and Kim to a degree, that they'd, you know, it was partly that they truly believed in the cause that they had initially joined up to, but also a sense that how does one extricate themselves once they're that deep? Um, For Kim, it would have been a, you know, he he would have faced execution. For Edith, she had a child. She couldn't risk, you know, the many different fallouts. but I do I do genuinely believe with Edith that she just believed she could change the world and she was going to give it her best bloody shot regardless. And, you know, I always think there's a bit of a get-out clause with Marxism because it's never the final epoch. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you can always argue that, well, it's going – this is all sort of part of the journey towards that sort of golden conclusion. But Kim used to say to my mum even, you know <laughs> – at the bitter end, um history will judge me kindly. He really believed, or at least he definitely was convinced enough to, to say convincingly to my mum that he, he believed that they'd done the right thing. And I'm, I think in many ways he probably did, but I do think there also must have been nights where he struggled to sleep.
1: If you devote so much of your life and make decisions that so determine your life it's really difficult to extricate yourself from that belief system and say actually you know i was wrong mm. there or or even i was slightly wrong um, mm. and particularly living in the soviet union he wouldn't want to sort of rock the boat there because he was you know he he was being looked after um have you ever watched that film of him speaking to the stasi in east berlin
0: yeah I had a lovely, um, and I've been so uh, fortunate because so many people from all sides have sort of come forward to me since you know, and, and been very generous with their information. And, and um, the the um, the creator of the CIA CIA archives um, took me aside and, and showed me that just you know, um, I think it was just before it became sort of uh, put into the public domain, and I thought that was interesting but i thought the far more interesting thing for me (laughs) and perhaps it's because his mannerisms are so similar to my dad's and my uncle's but when i see that 1951 press conference and And his thumbs flat yeah Yeah. he's supposed to be giving this really convincing um you know story about the, you know i'm not the third man he's smirking He's so very clearly sort of lying. And I just think, bloody hell, how did he get away with that? But, yes, I have seen that. I have seen yeah. him.
1: It's,
0: I mean, uh, I've I've heard that
1: uh, – And where did I uh, – you know how you read things or you hear things, you just can't remember where you heard it. What's the story of my life? <laughs> but uh, but I, that 1951 press conference – has been shown to like intelligence trainees to show mm. a masterclass in in lying, but I can't somehow believe that because you're right. He looks—he's—you can see almost the tongue in his cheek. Actually, he's he's, yeah,
0: it's fucking. Yeah. I would have thought it would be used as you know evidence of how um, how easily you can dupe the the sort of. the world if they want to believe something i think yeah
1: maybe it's used in that context because he the thing is is it's very easy to look at it in hindsight Mm. and say oh i can see he's lying because you know the you know the end of the story but
0: no i don't think so but i think it's because he's got really similar mannerisms to my dad and i can and it's like a it's almost like a sniff thing he does like a uh, I, it's it's just one of those things that you wouldn't know unless you've seen it.
1: Unless you're a Philby, you wouldn't know, huh?
0: <laughs> yeah. But it was it was. I mean, it wasn't funny, but it was interesting. When I wrote the piece for the Independent about um, this sort of epic trip that uh, we did, uh, my then boyfriend, now husband, Barney, um, did to Moscow. Uh, when I wrote it uh, up, the guy who sat opposite me, the chief reporter at the Indy at the time, said took his monitor and said you know Buster the crack milno you referred to who sort of failed to get the information out of him at that time he was my grandfather (laughs) 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 each other we worked on many stories together so wow yeah that's
1: a that's a brilliant brilliant coincidence that
0: (laughs) excellent man brilliant brilliant (laughs)
1: Of of the you know the letters that you've got from from Kim, what, mm. what would you say is your favourite one, or what's your favourite line from one of those letters that that you always remember?
0: What Yeah, I'm going to have to find it. It's on my phone, so give me a second. But you know, like purely narcissistic, is the one that he wrote to me. But actually, there are several that I think are hilarious. The one, um, the one that I. Think is just magic because it's so ridiculous. Is he? Before we used to go and visit him, he would send these epic shopping lists, and you would not believe the things that he requests. In fact, I'm just going to read you a couple of um, a couple of examples. Okay, so my very favorite, and it's because it's written to me, but this is the one that I said before was gorgeously written, and I think you'll probably probably agree. Um, says. My darling Charlotte, thank you for the lovely postcard which you sent to me from Cambridge. I wonder whether you yourself will be living there round about the year 2000, studying hard or, more likely, raising hell. I say more likely raising hell because with your daddy, your grandpa and your great-grandpa, you have a tradition of misbehaviour to sustain. In return for your postcard, I am sending you one of a young Siberian tiger. He looks very sweet, but when he is full-grown, he will be one of the biggest tigers in the world, not the sort of thing you would like to meet in Gorky Park on a dark night. I'm afraid he will probably end up in the zoo because they are getting fewer and fewer. Daddy will explain to you the destructiveness of man. I wonder whether you have found anywhere to play in the sun this summer. We've had a dismal time with the occasional sunshine, but mostly grey skies and quite a lot of rain. In the southern mountainous parts of the country, it's been rather dreadful with torrential rain causing big floods Avalanches and mudslides, not mentioning frightful hailstorms. Well, as you might say, salavi. Well, you little imp, please give your love, our love, to Mummy, Daddy, and keeps lots for yourself. Don't postpone your next visit too long. Lots of cuddles and kisses from the and Grandpa. And actually, interestingly, in that letter, he doesn't sign it, Kimski. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's so many things I love about that boat. One of them is demonstrating his preoccupation with the weather. He's got this absolute obsession, which when you read the book will become apparent. Yes,
1: it does become apparent.
0: (laughs) I I have taken some of it out. I was sort of tempted to take more out, but I just think it's so telling. You know, it's just so bloody English, isn't it? You move to the behind the iron curtain and of all the things that you have to report, you mustn't fail to mention the weather.
1: (laughs) I mean, that, that, that letter... Sort of reinforces what you were saying earlier about the different facets or the different faces of anyone, for example, really you know there's the grandfather there's the k g b agent there's the loyal civil servant there's the father um lover you know there's all of those different faces there, and you know even though you know your grandfather is hated by some people because he he was a he was a traitor you you hear a human voice there rather Mm. than a you know what what's in a in a in a history book or or something like that and that's one of the things i love about doing this podcast is getting the human side of the cold war not the guns and the tanks and all of that side but the the relationships that that went on and would have happened regardless whether the cold war was there or not but just give you a little bit more insight into people's experience and 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 what what people were like and very few people would think of kim philby as the you know the the doting grandfather of charlotte
0: yeah but i know that
1: richly illustrates it
0: yeah and I, and i don't feel you know i don't feel this like duty to show that because i i understand he's earned um, his reputation and i don't feel like I definitely don't think he would have felt he needed me to <laughs> to do so, but I I think it's interesting. And as you say, I just think the sort of the human that sort of human history for me is just far more interesting. And the fact, not more interesting, but it sort of illustrates. It just it just illustrates so much, you know. Um, I think historians you have to choose a version of truth to follow. You have to. Have the confidence of your conviction when you say, "Okay, well, I'm I'm going to I'm going to assume that X, Y, and Z is is true." And I, you know, it's almost like being a scientist um, for me. And, and the reason I wanted to write this as a novel is because there are so many versions of history, and it's those stories, those individual moments that um, that make up the sort of rich tapestry of life. Um, and when people try to to find these people and wholly understand them i understand the need to want to do or the, you know the need or the want to do that but i don't think it's possible without i don't think it's possible at all i don't think it's possible with anyone um, I, I use a quote which i'm going to completely bastardize now but um by a.a a. milne at the beginning of the book which is um so you know everybody is a mystery to everybody else essentially you know we, we can never truly know another person and Um, I think when it comes to these characters that we think we understand or or that we we know or or that we are frustrated that we don't understand, we make such an effort to try to um, explain their actions because they seem so abhorrent or incomprehensible. And the impact, the ramifications are so huge that we need to sort of um, understand them. But people are complex and nuanced and, and flawed and... You know, I know for myself, I'm one person one day and I'm another the next. Um, Essentially, I'm the same person, obviously, but, you know, we're all made up of these different facets and I'm a different person when I'm speaking to different people. When I'm with my children, I'm different too um, when I'm at work. And I just think it's really interesting when we sort of see other sides to people who, especially with a story like the Cambridge Spies, where we feel um, it's been so well told and it has, um, but maybe... There's something else that just throws a slightly different light on
1: on what we knew. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've definitely shed a load of light on Edith Tudor Hart. I I found the story really, really gripping and really well put together because I thought I knew the Cambridge Five story. And and whilst this is, you know, some of the dialogue is imagined, you're basing this on SIS files and known events that happened in edith's life and it's whilst it's not non-fiction i think it's a welcome addition to the literature around the the cambridge five um and you know edith's pivotal involvement in it which i don't think many people knew about yeah um you know you've mentioned these other books but then there's not a lot in English it sounds no.
0: like there's not or certainly not a lot that I have found and believe me I've looked yeah um, which may you know which sort of um comes with quite a deal of responsibility and I have to be clear that you know I have this is a character. I feel I know her so intimately, and I do genuinely believe that. But then I have to remember that this is a version of her life that I have reconstructed and reimagined. And some of the characters in the book don't exist um, beyond my imagination, and hopefully now or soon in the imagination of readers. Um, but there, within the files, there's not a, there, there's such a sense of her life and and also the extraordinary nature of what of what she was doing in that in a single paragraph, you'll have her going from her job at, as, a, as a photographer at Studio Sun to, um, you know, sort of to meet with one of her uh, sort of co-conspirators, a, a fellow spy, uh, sort of discussing the, the creation of the first atomic bomb. And on route, she goes to pick up her son, Tommy, from Anna Freud, who's treating him for um, his, his conditions. And you see in the files them talking about her looking after this boy who looks very worried and has this sort of very withheld demeanor. He didn't speak. He was extremely—I um, don't want to say difficult because that puts an element of blame on him. But you know, it was—he was—he he, was—he was an ill child. Um, mm. But what's also interesting is that we have her letters to, for example, Alexander um, and to Donald Winnicott, with whom she had a relationship. He was she sort of entrusted Tommy to his care and and to my mind he completely um, betrayed her trust by having a relationship with her and then sort of not fulfilling I don't want to give too much away but it, it wasn't a good situation but you can see in the letters that she's written to them it's almost sort of neurotic need um which is so at odds with her braveness and her sort of independence and her um her sort of her sense of self so Within the files, there's not just that sort of voyeuristic, you know, her being watched, but also files where she's, we actually see her writing and, and how she spoke. Um, yeah. And I also interviewed family members, which was so wonderful. And having their memories that I've sort of woven in to scenes um, was sort of invaluable. Yeah, it's
1: uh, well, if you're weaving them in, it's definitely a rich tapestry that you've...
0: Uh, i so Thanks my metaphor has, has been... Yeah, it,
1: it, <laughs> it, it, it hit home there. Um, is there anywhere where you can see Edith's photos? Is
0: there a book of her photos or not? There's a wonderful book of her photos, and it's called In the Shadow of Tyranny by uh, Duncan Forbes, um, who is an art historian and I'd... Highly recommend it. There's another another book called um, In the Eye of Conscience um, by her brother Walsh Shisitsky, um, which is smaller and, and lovely. But for the full sort of um, you know the full range of her work, I would say go for In the Shadow of Tyranny by Duncan Forbes. Right,
1: right. I'll look out
0: for that because I think that this is the other
1: side. I know we mentioned it right at the start, but she was an amazing photographer and was working for you Know some high profile publications as well when she was in London,
0: absolutely. And she really sort of resisted, she had she 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 sort of managed to balance commercial work with, um, you know, work that that was, um, about sort of capturing a time. You know, she went and photographed the miners, um, with her husband, uh, Alexander Tudor Hart, who then went off and um he was a surgeon helped the wounded in in the spanish civil war um for free um before and then they they broke up soon after that um but she uh, she took the amazing photographs, sort of um encapsulating the poverty in vienna and in london but it but she really resisted sentimentalizing and she really didn't like that it was you know it was politicized um photography but she didn't cheapen it she didn't sort of try to um You know, she just wanted to show things as they were. And her work is stunning. And I was really fortunate because there was a contemporary of hers who actually, they they never met um, Dorothy Bong, who is also a lauded photographer uh, from Vienna from around that period. And she also worked with the Roliflex camera, which Mm. needed to use. And I suddenly realised there were a couple of scenes, you know, where she's um, developing her photos. And I suddenly thought, I've got no idea (laughs) how Roliflex works or, you know, how... So I got in touch with a photographer friend of mine and he said, "I've got no idea either, but um perhaps you could contact uh, there's a foundation um insiders outsiders, which is really interesting. It sort of celebrates the contribution of um, Nazi refugees from Nazi uh, Germany, I think specific well I think Germany Austria um, yeah. and her and and this is Dorothy's daughter, Monica, who runs that. so she went and found she went and asked her mother Dorothy, to sort of give me an insight into the mechanics of actually using a flex camera and and developing the film and, and her little insights and actually the sort of the emotions that Dorothy attached to those explanations I've borrowed for the book as well. So um it's fascinating. And and, and I think being a photographer, you know, for her was like a tool. As as a spy, it's perfect, isn't it? You've got a pram, so you're invisible. Like no one sees a woman with a pram. And then you've got a photo- you've got a camera, so you've got an excuse to be everywhere and sort of taking pictures of all these things. Um, you know, you really couldn't make it up, or at least I couldn't make it up. But maybe I'm just not good enough of a storyteller. But
1: <laughs> well, I doubt that very much, um, based on based on your track record and based on on reading this. So the now I've only got a uh I've got the review copy, so I haven't got the name with um Edith and, and Kim on. But that quote is from an interview with
0: Kim, isn't it? I believe so. I actually don't know where it came from in terms of objective history, but my dad used to use it, you know, to sort of if anyone asked him I can't remember exactly how he phrased it when my husband asked him, but you know, did your you know, did your dad? Do you feel that he was a traitor? And and um, my dad sort of borrowed his phrase and said, "To betray, you, you must first belong." And and him never felt he belonged. And I think that is true. Or, you know, whether or not it's a justification, I think it's true that he never felt that he belonged. And I I feel what's partly what's fascinating about his story, and also sort of what I love about the Carrie books, um which I sort of think really encapsulates this kind of character is those sort of insider outsiders um, and people who are. You know, maybe it was a Carrie but more sort of changing the system from within. But I think the juxtaposition for Kim between feeling part of the establishment and feeling removed from it um, was very apparent and sort of laced through his life and his tastes and the way that he lived. And those contradictions maybe made him less, in my mind, slightly of um of such an empathetic character because I feel like Edith was true to herself and true to not just what she believed, but what she experienced um, and sort of never wavered.
1: Yeah. I I guess for her, she never had to really hide her beliefs though.
0: That's also true. And, And I do make that point in the book through at, at one point i have kim sort of reflecting on the fact that he's actually quite envious of her ability to just live her life as she was you know without um concealment obviously it wasn't you know she had to conceal uh, her beliefs to a degree but um she didn't have she could live truly as who she was um and he probably envied that in her or i imagine in the book that he envied That, but obviously the flip side is that he gets to live this um, relatively lavish life and ends up with a a state burial um, in a flat given to him by the KGB. um, In contact with his family, and you know, at risk of ruining the ending, (laughs) Edith's life does not turn out in um, in such uh, in sort of similar way, or you know, in a way that I feel like she deserved, Um, and I hope. I suppose that this book at least helps her get the recognition that I think she deserves. Um, whether or not you, as you said earlier, you believe her politics, I think she deserves to be recognised um, for the effort that she made, with no rewards, never paid. You know, she lived in poverty. She um, she made all the commitments that the men who were sort of doing the same thing on the other side you know, the Cambridge spies didn't have to.
1: So the book is called Edison and Kim. When's it published, Charlotte?
0: The 31st of March, but it's available for pre-order now.
1: <laughs> you can pre-order it now. Um, I've been very lucky to get an advanced copy, so I've read it. So it gets the Cold War Conversation seal of approval. And uh, we're also going to be doing a book giveaway. So uh, if... Uh, listeners want to be in the chance of winning a copy you will have to go to the episode notes and uh, there'll be details of how to access those at the at the end of this but Charlotte I've really appreciated your time it's been a lot of fun chatting with you you know hearing about the book which is brilliant but also just hearing some insights into into your grandfather as well
0: thank you I've really enjoyed talking to you and it's so nice to finally do it I feel like I've I've been looking forward to this for a while, so thank you. Well,
1: we've been trying. I think I first got in contact with you about three years ago. I think I we have been trying to line this up, but I think we what we've been doing is waiting for the right book yes, and, uh, and
0: hopefully it's, this.
1: <laughs> it's it's finally arrived. Have you ever thought about doing any nonfiction, or is fiction definitely your your bag?
0: I, I have thought about it, and and you know I I am a news journalist by sort of trade. Um, But with this book, I I didn't feel I could get – I just felt I had to disassociate to a degree doing it by doing it um, as fiction. But no, I'm sure that nonfiction will – something, the right idea will come to me one day and and it'll happen. But for the moment, I'm just making it up as I go along.
1: So listeners of Cold War Conversations, Rush Out and Buy, um, Edith and Kim, highly recommended. Thank you very much, Charlotte.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Now, don't forget details of our book giveaway, which will be in our episode notes alongside photos and videos that accompany it It will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous patrons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a patron by going to ColdWarconversations.com slash donate. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.